where common sense, honest conversation, and thought-provoking discussions thrive in a completely independent forum. This is the Roundup Podcast. I'll be the first to admit that I love a little bit of Roundup in my life. Roundup in my life. Here now is your host. He is quite a character. His name is Jeff. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Jeff. Jeff Eager. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Oregon Roundup Podcast, the finest podcast about Oregon politics and policy. A recording here in Bend, Oregon today as usual on a cloudy day, but it's not snowing and there's no ice on the ground. So I'll take it. Serious subject today on the podcast. Today we have Nancy Rommelman on the podcast. She's a writer for Reason Magazine, written a bunch of other stuff, lived in Portland for a decade or so and has continued to cover what's gone on there. She covered the riots and protests in 2020 and 2021. And most to our point today, she wrote a piece that's uh, headlined A Murder in Portland for the Washington Examiner magazine. That piece ran at the end of December 2022, and it tells the absolutely tear-jerking story of a woman named uh, Rachel Abraham who was murdered by her boyfriend or allegedly murdered by her boyfriend, Muhammad Adan, last year in Portland after a series of assaults on her, including a strangulation. And Adan was let let out multiple times without bail. And at the end of the day was let out on $2,000 bond that was paid by a criminal justice reform organization out of Portland. He subsequently went on to then murder Abraham in her home in which her children and his children also lived. It's a tragic story and one that really hasn't been told in Oregon media. That's why I wanted to have Nancy on. It's a great interview. She she knows a lot about what happened, has a cool perspective on this stuff. It's a story that absolutely needs to get out there. Oregonians need to know this story. So hope you enjoy it. All right. And now I'd like to introduce Nancy Rommelman, who writes for Reason Magazine and other places and has written a handful of books including To the Bridge, a true story of motherhood and murder. Nancy lived for a time in Portland and covered the protests and riots there in 2020 and 2021. We'll talk to her about a recent article she wrote in the Washington Examiner called A Murder in Portland that I think you'll find interesting. Nancy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. That was a very, very comprehensive introduction. I appreciate it. Thank you. I did a lot of prep for this show, as I always do, Nancy, by which I mean about 10 minutes. (laughs) Oh, I would not know anything about that. I lived in Portland from 2004 to 2019. So I really certainly did know the lay of the land. Even after I left in 2019, I was back and forth quite a lot, starting, of course, with covering the protests, which just kind of spilled over into 2021, as most people realize Portland, for me, in ways that are not always happy ways, is the city that just keeps on giving me things to write about. One was, as you mentioned, To the Bridge, A True Story of Motherhood and Murder, that is of a woman named Amanda Stott-Smith, who brought her two young children to a bridge in May 2009 and dropped them over. Her son drowned. Her daughter survived. And then most recently, as you mentioned, is A Murder in Portland, which is about the murder of a woman named Rachel Abraham a mother of six, who was murdered by her former boyfriend and father of her two youngest children. And indeed, it was in Washington Examiner magazine. I was happy to have a place to run it at length. And it's a story I'd love to talk about it with you, especially because as far as I can tell, 
after the first few days that it was in the news locally, it really dropped from the radar. One reason being probably, as, as most people listening to this know, Portland broke its murder record for the second straight year. So there have been 38 murders since Rachel Abraham was murdered on August 27th. And of course, you know, daily newspapers have other stories and other murders to write about. I had, I'm here in New York City. I had a bit of a luxury to stretch out and spend some three months on it. But I am surprised with all that I found out about all the failures in the system that people have not been interested in, in talking about this. And I really, I really would love to and, and to answer any questions that you have. That's great, Nancy. Thank you. And we will dive right into that. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you today is, first of all, the fact that you highlighted a story from Oregon. I'm from Oregon. I read a lot of Oregon news and am involved in Oregon politics and other stuff like that. But I honestly didn't know this story until I read this piece in the Washington Examiner. And I think that it's a it's a really good, by which I mean bad, reflection on something I've taken to calling the, the Oregon blind spot, which is Oregonians are, are really kind of left in the dark about some of these important stories that are occurring in our state when they are stories that the folks that are elected to lead us and the folks that are cover, that are paid to cover those folks don't necessarily prioritize us knowing about those stories because they don't fit with the narrative that that they maybe want us to think about when we're thinking about Portland or Oregon or the impact of some of these policies, including some of the bail policies that are implicated in in your story and in the tragic story of Rachel Abraham. So if you wouldn't mind, Nancy, go ahead and just kind of tell us about Rachel and what happened to her, kind of the different, seems like she had a few different mix-ups with her boyfriend, Muhammad Adan, and kind of how, how it came to end in murder. Sure. So Muhammad Adan, again, is the father of Rachel's two youngest children. She has six little girls, ranging in age, I believe, from 14 to 2. He started threatening her in fall of 2021, actually had assaulted her brother at that time. I think that was the first police report that she filed against him. And then starting in early 2022, he began assaulting her, including one of the first and most egregious ones was him breaking into the house and strangling her and, you know, telling her that he was going to kill her, kneeling on her windpipe. Some of the children were in the house at this time. She did call the police. A no-contact order was issued as was a monitoring system, which did absolutely nothing to stop him from... Oh, so when that happened, so you would think, okay, he had five counts of felony strangulation against him, all right? And one would think that at that point, this is someone you would want to hold either for no bail or for a high amount of bail. And in fact, the DA's office, which I'll have more to say about later, did recommend a bail of $60,000. But the judge in the case said, no, basically let him out for no bail, let him out with the monitoring ankle monitor. Well, he proceeded to tear that off and reattack her, which they knew, though he told them he was sleeping and someone took it off him and he had no idea why and he hadn't been to her house. He, he had been at her house. They, they tracked her and, and she called again. Anyway, this went on all summer long. He had multiple arrest warrants out for him. He had been arrested numerous times for assaulting her and yet... He was let out three times for no bail. They just did not see the reason to 
hold him, despite the fact that originally the DA's office and assistant DA named Mackenzie Ludwig had put in writing, he presents a high lethality factor and has said he is going to kill her. So the final assault on her where he was arrested was, well, not the final, final one. The, the, the penultimate one was August 20th, I believe. He was arrested again for assaulting her. And finally this time, they decided to impose $20,000 bail. Now, I'm going to just stop myself for a second here. If you look at the docket, if you look at what happened with the six different judges that had been involved with him and try to make heads and tails of why these numbers jump from 60,000 to zero to 80 to 20, your head will spin around in circles. I spent a great deal of time with several attorneys trying to make sense of it. And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but which is obviously a problem within the system. In any case, he finally was held for, there was $20,000 bail put on him for, I believe it was for contempt of court. And his defense attorney, who is with Metropolitan Public Defenders, it's the biggest public defender outfit in Portland. Right. They contacted, I believe this is the, the, the uh, sequence of events, they had contacted Portland Freedom Fund. Portland Freedom Fund is a private bail fund set up. Their mission now is to bail out black, brown, and indigenous defendants so that they can be out of jail while they're preparing their defense, which obviously makes sense. I, I don't have a disagreement with that. The problem I have is that, first of all, the bail is only $2,000. That's the bond you need to put up. It's 10%, right, of the bail amount. And so it's $2,000 to get a guy out who has attacked her four times this summer, including strangulation, including a gun to the head, including this incredibly long list of things he's done ripping off the GPS. They either, A, did not do their due diligence, or B, looked at this Gentleman, Mohammed Adan, he is black, he is an immigrant, he was unemployed, he did not have a secure place to live, and he obviously fit their, the, the profile of a mission of someone that they felt that they should help. Sure, and- sure, Nancy. Let me, let me just make sure I've got the, the timeline right, or as right as we can get it. That's a great intro to kind of this flurry of activity that happened in, in over last summer involving these two folks and the criminal justice system. There was a no-contact order entered against Adon because he had, at various points, assaulted Abraham. And then those attacks included one attack where there was an attempted strangulation. And as a result of that attack, there was no bail. He was just let out. Yes, and so the way this works, it's, it's kind of hard to figure out. It took a lot of digging. What, what happens now is there is a, it's not just a matter of the defense attorney or the district attorney making this assessment. There is an assessor, and I'm sorry to say I'm going to forget exactly what branch they are with, but it's not with the DA's office. Right. And they send in a private assessor who sits with whoever the defendant is and gives them a, a test. And if you score like over six, then you're going to have to have a bail imposed or you're not going to get out on bail at all. Well, apparently the assessor decided that Adon scored, I believe the first time it was a four. And so he would have been free to be let out for no reason, except for the fact that it was a domestic violence case, in which case it then gets kicked back up to the judge. So the assessor gives the recommendation saying, we feel it's okay to let this guy out except that there's a domestic violence charge. Now it gets kicked to the judge, and the judge made the decision 
that he would be let out. So that's how that initially happened. And then all summer with the, the rearrests and the reattacks and the ripping off the, of the GPS, some people were trying to impose bail, but it just never stuck. It was as though every time it could have gone Rachel Abraham's way, it went the other way. It went in favor of Muhammad Adan. Until that last time, the bail was put in. The $2,000 was paid by a woman named Amanda Trujillo of the Portland Freedom Fund. She paid the $2,000. While she was at it, she settled a driving penalty of some sort of DWI or driving without a license he had from Clackamas County. And then a week later, he went and killed Rachel Abraham. Before we move on from kind of the bail and the multiple releases during that summer, what role, if any, did this Oregon Senate Bill 48 play in all this? And for for the listeners, Oregon Senate Bill 48 was Oregon's famous, or depending on who you're talking to, infamous bail reform law that was designed to, and I'm reading from Nancy's story here, quote, promote consistent, fair, equitable justice practices across Oregon and may have instituted this threat assessment kind of approach that you just described. What role, if any, did that Senate bill have in in what happened with the dawn that last summer? I think this is a multi-layered question. First of all, the first answer to this question is none at all because SB 48 didn't pass until July 1st. Okay. Adon had been arrested before that. So we are now, we are now saying by, or we're being shown evidently that there was an appetite to not hold someone who had been accused of a violent crime. So that appetite has been being sharpened since I believe something like 2019 or 2020, when this bill was sort of becoming introduced, when they really wanted, this is what Portland Portlanders or Portland lawmakers or the whole, you know, Megillah said that they wanted. But did it, was it like, oh, well, that's the reason he got out? No. And I'm actually glad you asked, because one thing that readers don't know is journalists don't write their headlines or even their subheadlines. Occasionally we do, but we usually don't. And the Washington Examiner magazine shows a subheadline like showing what bail reform, you know, led to this murder. Well, it really wasn't that. It's really more criminal justice reform that led to her being being murdered. You know, it's the it's the sort of little things that lead to bigger things. It's the election of a Mike Schmidt, who's very openly progressive, who I believe, and I, I don't have a whole lot of evidence for this, except that he definitely did, his office definitely did want Adon to be held. He wanted bail initially. However, there's been so many other instances where he does not want people and his offices do not want people held. I actually had a, a conversation today with a former law enforcement official in Portland who said, you know, Schmidt's office is not going to change. And you, you might want to spread the blame around here, Nancy, but you also have to understand it's also coming from the head. And we now have a very progressive DA, which, look, I believe that the people are absolutely allowed to, to vote in who they want. They absolutely are allowed to do that. And if Portlanders feel that Mike Schmidt is the best person for the job, well, that is what they are going to get. But I think that they are then either actively or passively going to have to accept the fact that the system that he is in charge of is going to allow and is actually going to make it easy for mothers of six small children to be killed. Now, that's not a pretty thing to accept. And I I can't say I'm going to be so cynical as to say, uh, people are going to be like, well, you know, you got to break a couple of eggs in order to like make this better progressive omelet that we're going for. 
But as we started this conversation, is this something that's being written about in Portland? Are people talking about this like, wow, this is really a problem. What do we do about it? You can answer that question for me, Jeff, because (laughs) I haven't seen it. Nope. It's a disconnect, right? There's kind of in 2020, 2021, kind of brought to a head what had been going on for a long time in Portland and more broadly in Oregon, which is kind of this belief that criminal justice, criminal justice system is or was racist and is or was unfair to to poor people. And there were a lot of people who'd been working on that on that side of the argument for quite some time. And then the George Floyd murder happened and everything was kind of brought to a head. And so you had these folks, you know, the progressive DA movement of which Mike Schmidt is part, that predates George Floyd. I mean, they've been working on this for a while. And there's certainly this ethos kind of in the in Portland generally that folks deserve a second chance and they're suspicious of police oftentimes. I think that now people are seeing the bad outcomes of that, that you do need police, you do need to fund police, you do need a, a fair criminal justice system because people of any race can commit crimes and people of any race can be a victim of crimes, as was the case here. I think Rachel was African-American as well, as I recall. That's right. That's right. Getting back to the story just a little bit, Nancy, the judge who released Adon for no bail, that was Judge Benjamin B. Johnston. Do I have that right? I'm reading that you from your do. story. Okay. You do, but there are others. I mm-hmm. mean, he was not the only one. That was initially. But if you go down, and I'm, and I'm sorry, I don't have the story in front of me, there were at least, I think, three others. So this was not like a one-off, like, wow, how did this guy not see this? Other judges did too. And then some judges, as if I'm recalling this correctly, would impose bail or would ask for it, and then like the next judge would just flip it. And I don't know, actually... Because the, I did try to contact at least one of the judges, and they're like, it's really, and, and I can understand this. They can't really talk about This is an open case now. Now he, Adon's up for murder, right? So they can't really talk about this stuff. But, you know, is it, a, is it the case that the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing? Or is it the left hand is saying, ha-ha, I'm going to undo what the right hand is doing because I feel our mission is more important? I, I can't answer that question. I don't, I don't know. But I, I do want to go back to one thing you said. I mean, it is absolutely true that the justice system has been racist and that we have to do a better job. I don't think anybody is going to dispute that. But then when you start seeing that the fixes, in air quotes, that you think are going to work are not working, then you have to have the courage to say, you know what, we're wrong and we need to make modifications. We need to turn this car around. And that is what I do not think Portlanders have the appetite for. For some, I, I covered the, the recall of Chesa Boudin. I was actually in San Francisco at the recall party when, when he lost. There's an appetite for that in San Francisco because you have a lot of different kinds of people there. You've got the tech bros that have their money. You've got rich people, poor people, this and that. They're going to be able to have that momentum. I don't think Portland has that momentum to say, you know what, we might be driving in the wrong direction. I don't see that there are, though we do have a more moderate leadership now with the new people on the city council. I don't know that there's an appetite yet. I think people want to either A, ignore the story, or B, they've never heard the story, or C, they just want to take their kids to soccer, okay? They just don't want to deal with this, and they trust that their elected officials are going to do the right thing. And I can't say, well, I can say, 
<laughs> the right thing was not done by Rachel Abrams. I think that's eminently clear. I don't think anyone could say that the right thing was done here. And I, I, I think that we'll see. I think the jury's out on whether Portland's coming around or not. I think Ted Wheeler, some of the things he's doing up there, he's kind of putting to the test just where they are in that process. And we'll see where that comes out. But going back to last summer, so just to recap, Adon assaults Abraham multiple times, including trying to strangle her. He's ultimately arrested kind of a a final time when he cuts his GPS bracelet off and then he's held in contempt of court. That time there is bail, $20,000 bail. And then this nonprofit, the Portland Freedom Foundation, Freedom Freedom Fund, bails him out for a total of $2,000, the bond amount being 10% of the bail. Then what happens? What happens next between Adon and Abraham? Well, he, within the week, he goes back to her house while the three, three little girls are in the house. The ones that were in the, her older daughters with her first husband were out of the house. He had gotten them out of the house earlier in the summer saying this was not a safe place for his kids. That's what I was told, at least. I never spoke with him directly. He comes around at around 7 o'clock in the morning. He, again, starts to assault her. She's able to get to her phone and call 911. The only thing the operator hears is, I'm not doing black magic, which is Rachel. We don't know exactly why she was saying that. The phone is disconnected. The operator calls back and gets no answer. At that point, at around 721 in the morning, a neighbor calls 911 to say she hears screaming. It's coming from Rachel's children's bedroom window or one of the bedrooms. She's in a two-story townhouse. And the next thing we know is on the timeline, Muhammad Adan calls his mother who lives in Texas, tells her what he's done. He takes a shower and then he calls the police himself and says, he calls 911 and says she's dead. They say, try to perform CPR. He refuses. The police arrive and find Rachel Abraham. They find the three children downstairs who God knows where those children were when their mother was being stabbed, beaten, and strangled to death, and then laid on one of their beds. And they find him and arrest him. That's what happened that morning. There is a gap between the first call from a neighbor at 911 and when Adon calls 911 himself, I don't know what happened during those three hours. I don't know if he was continually beating her, which is just a nightmare. I don't know why the police didn't get there immediately, but they didn't. And now he's charged with murder and he's being defended by the same, again, by Metropolitan Public Defender, the same people that defended him from all the times that he'd attacked Rachel Abraham. That's what happened. Just a tragic story. It's it's difficult even to to listen to. Is he being held without bail now? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. There's no bail now for murder. No, there's no bail. So I want to get back to the timeline just a little bit on that. And do we know the time at which she passed away? We don't. I mean, she was dead when they got there. You know, it's funny. I can't explain the gap in the first call from a neighbor and then 911 calling back. I don't know exactly the protocol Like, well, do they have to come out anyway? I don't know. It's a bit disturbing. I doubt it has anything to do with like, oh, it's those people again, always at each other. It would never, I I don't think that's even a possibility. We don't know. We do know that he, this is terrible. The coroner did determine 
that she had been stabbed both before and after she was strangled to death. Wow. And so as as far as we know from that whole time that he arrived at the house around 7 a.m. until the time the police arrived hours later, that Adon was there in the house and that Abraham, whether alive or dead, was there in the house. And we presume the three children were there throughout as well. I mean, I can't imagine that they left the house and came back. You know, they're seven, four and two. These are his kids, right? So the youngest two are his. Yes, the youngest two are his. And, and I have to say, so Portland Freedom Fund, you know, this is certainly not the outcome they would have predicted or wanted. When they released the message on their Facebook page after it happened, they were like, this is a tragedy. You know, it's effectively left both children dead, all, both, both parents dead, and it's a tragedy when this happens to anybody. They, they, it's in my article. Yeah. The message backfired hugely. People were not understanding of their having bailed out this man if they had. If, I have to tell you, I don't know who could have looked at, at what he'd done all summer and said, oh, yeah, he's a good bet. Right. He's the one. He's the one I want to I back. That's the horse I want to back. And, you know, if people think that is cruel of me, I will quote or I will paraphrase a woman named Shariah, Shariah Mayfield, who's an attorney who I quote in my piece. She's like, we have to start extending more empathy to the people who would be murdered than to their murderers. And in the case of Portland Freedom Fund, they extended more empathy because Muhammad Adan, I guess, matched their mission than they did to the woman who had been being beaten and threatened with death all summer. And that, again, as, as Mayfield said to me, she says, you know, Portland wants to, to kind of like prove its bona fides, but this is not progressive. This is regressive. You are killing women, and you didn't kill the children, but I mean, with your children in the house, this is, this is a nightmare. And I, I've got to say, now I'm getting all hot and bothered here, Portland, Portland's got to open its eyes. It has to open its eyes as to how this happened. And if Portland decides we're cool with this, we think this is cool, then I, I don't know what to say. But, but Because ostensibly, by their silence, that is what they're saying. I couldn't agree more, Nancy. And I want to thank you for taking the time. And I'll, I will put the story that we keep referring to in the show notes, of course, so that folks can read it. It's a thorough story. It'll take a few minutes to read I highly recommend reading it because there's detail in that story that that we haven't been able to cover here on the podcast today. And send that story, you know, we all know a lot of people in Portland, send that story to people that, you know, maybe think that things like this don't happen in Portland or maybe vote for the types of people that, that enact things like this or maybe, God forbid, give money to things like the Portland Freedom Fund. This is the the fruit of of that kind of policy. So at least they know, like Nancy said, maybe they'll keep voting the same way and contributing in the same way. But at least they need to understand that this is one of the effects of those policies that Portland's been pursuing for decades now, but certainly in the last few years. I wanted to just read a part of, of Nancy's story that really stood out to me before we wrap up here. This is toward the end of her article. She writes, Muhammad Adan was released from jail because that's what the people of Portland said they wanted. They demanded during their 100 plus nights of protests a different kind of 
justice, one that would curtail or eliminate the carceral system. They set the courthouse on fire, literally and figuratively. They elected people and enacted laws that would take power from traditional authorities, the police, the courts, because they believed those authorities could not be trusted. Only the people, it was proffered, could be trusted to do the right thing. That the people could not be trusted to do the right thing, that Portland Freedom Fund had effectively removed the protections keeping Abraham alive, might have given people pause, might have had them questioning whether a murdered mother of six was an acceptable loss on the road to criminal justice reform. End quote. Really touching, really important stuff. And I think Nancy in that passage I just read really highlights the crux of the issue. And Nancy, I want to thank you again for highlighting this and bringing it to my attention, even though I live in this state. And again, recommend that folks listening to this read the story that Nancy wrote, forward this podcast on, forward Nancy's article on, and make sure that everyone in the state of Oregon knows about this. If I may, I'll just give you one little plug here. So I wrote a companion piece that I have on my Substack, and I would love it if people would go subscribe to my Substack. It's nancyrommelman.substack.com. A companion piece that I think kind of shows how Portland finds itself where it is, at least from my point of view. And that might be interesting for people to read, too, though I'm sure a lot of Oregonians already kind of know a lot of what I'm talking about. I want to thank you for having me on. I think it's an important story, and I'm glad to keep log rolling it and to keep talking about it. And if people want to reach me, I'm on Twitter, Nancy Rom, N-A-N-C-Y-R-O-M-M. My DMs are open. I'm happy to communicate with you and to keep trying to cover what's going on in Portland in what I hope is a kind way and and clear-eyed way. So thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you, Nancy, and keep keep up your good work. We'll stay in touch. Keep writing about Oregon, and we'll have you on again. I'll do it. Thanks. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed. Enjoyed is probably the wrong word. I hope you found the interview with Nancy as informative and sad as I did. There are a few stories that I've come into contact with that more plainly set forth the challenges that we have in Oregon and especially people in Portland have to change course before it's too late and to take a more realistic approach to criminal justice issues and consider the victims of those of violence as well as the perpetrators of violence. I hope you'll read Nancy's story. I'll put it in the show notes and share this story, share this podcast, share her article with other people you know in Oregon, because this story needs to be told so that people know who to hold responsible for what happened to Rachel Abraham and how we can prevent future violence and death of this sort. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Roundup Podcast. To share your thoughts with Jeff, you can email him at jeff at oregonroundup.com. You can also subscribe to his newsletter at oregonroundup.substack.com.